0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Um, today, as far as the sermon goes, we are going to look at Genesis 47 and 48. We're going to cover two chapters. I'm not going to read all those verses for the sake of time, but what we're going to look at is sort of the end of... Uh, we're coming into the close of the book of Genesis. we spent the whole year preaching through it. And, um, and we're looking at the end of Jacob's life and, and his actual coming to Egypt and settling in. Joseph, his son, was sold into slavery as a teenager by his brothers. And he sovereignly finds himself second in command in all of Egypt. And he brings down uh, to, to care for, in these chapters, his brothers and his his dad and their families. And so we see the, the supernatural provision of God to, um, to preserve this remnant, this family. And so the theme of, of today and uh, really next Sunday as well is family and, and last week as well. You guys that were here last week, I, I taught you that three things make families. You guys remember what those three things are? This is like a little pop quiz. Three things make families: Having babies, the blood of Jesus Christ, and underground street racing. No one, no one shouted it out, so you guys still got to learn, okay? Having babies, the blood of Jesus, and underground street racing are the things that make family. Dom Toretto taught us, right, that, that family um, is forged around stealing cars and racing um, and all that nonsense in the Fast and Furious films, right? And what, what I love about, what I learn about from Dom Toretto is that, that we are created in the image of God, and we are created and designed by our Creator to seek after family, Now, I joke about that, but it actually plays out in real life, and I've seen it in a lot of different ways. You could probably think of several ways you see it expressed, but but what happens is you see human beings uh, look for bonds that are familial in lots of areas of their lives, particularly if they don't have um, blood family, uh, a a deep connection to their their physical family. Uh, One of the ways that I see it in my life is motorcycle clubs. Like motorcycle clubs, they patch in brothers and they, they call themselves brothers and they are a band together that will have each other's backs and be there for one another and they use the language of, of family. If you ever watch Sons of Anarchy, you know a little bit about that culture. You see it also in uh, fraternities and sororities. And, and again, what's the common thread? You have young adults who have left their family, left home, and for the first time in their life, they're kind of out on their own. And so you have the rise of Greek life and, and, and them having sisters around them or brothers around them to help them in everyday life. Now, there's nothing wrong with things like that and many other ways in which familial bonds are formed. There's nothing wrong with those things, but I think it's designed um, in our DNA that we actually long for that. Because we're created in the image of God, we are designed for community. We're designed to be in community, to have family, and when our physical families fail us... We, are, we, we begin to look for it in other places. Um, those are imperfect expressions of what God has designed us to be in in the church. And even the church is an imperfect expression of that. Like the, the, the church is not perfect. There is no perfect local church. Um, If there was, I would be joining that one. Uh, It doesn't take you very many Sundays of visiting here at New Heights to figure out we are not the perfect church, and we never will be. Uh, But we live in a world that is very difficult, and we need other people around us to help us. We live in a hard world. We live at a a time, particularly, where we're dealing with economic pressure, right? We've all been to Walmart lately. Uh, we, We live at a time of polarizing society and culture. Where, where, where media and, and social media and, and and the whole world wants to put us either far right or far left, and anyone who's not in our same views on every issue becomes public enemy number one to us. Uh, but, but our struggles are not new. These are the kinds of things, they might look different in their expressions, but these are the kinds of things humanity has struggled with from the beginning of time. Ecclesiastes one nine says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. That's why every Sunday we open up our Bibles together and we look at what instruction the Lord has for us. Um, I've, heard it, I've heard the Bible called, uh, uses as an, an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you guys heard that? I hate acronyms. Christians do way too many acronyms. I don't know why we do that as Christians, but we want to make an acronym out of everything. Like we want to start a prayer team and we're like, okay, let's, let's figure out how to make this Christian pray. Well, prayer is the P, is, we'll just lowercase that, really awesome, yeah. You know, and we'll just like make up an acronym so we can put it on a T-shirt, all right? But of all the acronyms that I hate, like the, the Bible ones, like I hate that one the least. Like, okay, the the Bible is is a, an instruction guide to us um, about a life that is temporary. We are temporal sojourners in this world. And so I want to I pull out three things from these two chapters of Genesis um, to focus our time. Number one, uh, that God gives us favor in a world of evil, that, that those who have descended into the depths of depravity um, are in, in, a, in a place of, of prominence all around us. The world is evil, and we live in a, in a world filled with sin, and we need God's favor in those moments. Secondly, we'll look at how God gives us help in a world full of hardship, that, that life is difficult, amen? And God gives us help and assistance in that. We'll see that in an example through Egypt and then thirdly, uh, we'll see that legacy is what we're called to, that we're called to respond in covenant and then pass that on to those around us. And so we'll see legacy in a world of rebellion, okay? Number one, favor in a world of evil. Uh, listen, were it not for the favor and blessing of God, we would all crumble under the weight of the world. Um, I, I don't know you uh, and your story intimately, uh, but I can promise you that everyone in this room has been more blessed than they deserve to be. I just guarantee it. What, from the wealthiest in the room to the poorest in the room, I promise you, you have been shown the favor of God more than you deserve to have it shown to you. And the sons of Israel could have maybe made an argument that they hadn't been blessed. They had a rough time at this point in their life. To remind you of the context, they're in famine. That, that God had used Joseph to reveal that, that there was seven years of plenty that were coming upon all the nations and then followed by seven years of famine. And, and they're at this point in this famine. And so for the sons of Israel, they don't know uh, where the next meal's coming from. They don't know how long the pantry is going to last them. They don't know how they're gonna be able to provide and feed their families. They also had a karma-like view of God's dealing with them. They, they kind of viewed it as they had done bad, and so now God was angry at them. Now, you might not be so dissimilar. You might, um, you might be in a place of poverty right now. You might find yourself in a place where there's financial uncertainty. Uh, you also might view God's dealing with you like karma. Listen, the Bible doesn't teach karma. The Bible doesn't teach that that all of your bad returns upon your head and and if you do enough good, then everything will go easy for you. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over things and when bad things come, it's not necessarily that he's angry at you, it's that God has allowed them for his sovereign purpose. And here they view the the selling of their brother into slavery as the reason for all of their hardship. But if they look hard enough, what they would see is God's favor in an evil, evil world. That, Joseph, that God was working through Joseph to graciously bring them down to a land called Goshen to settle in the, in the foothills of Egypt to be blessed, to be taken care of by the wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth. And, and Joseph brings them down um, in this chapter to Goshen, and they settle there. And he brings five of his brothers to appear or, or meet with uh, Joseph. He leaves six behind. I don't know what that says about the other six. Um, It doesn't tell us which ones he brings before Pharaoh. It kind of makes me think of like, you know, um, I I haven't had TV service for like a decade, and I just recently got YouTube TV, and so so I can watch like the local news again. So I've been watching the local news, and I've remembered why I quit watching the local news. It's because of the people they interview. And if you've been interviewed on the local news recently, I'm sorry, but you're part of the problem. And... (laughs) They just find the most redneck people to represent us. And then, God forbid, we make it on national news, and it's always bad, right? Like, I, I, there, was a, there was a viral video a while, a while back of this guy in Huntington that was describing a car wreck, and he, like, he reenacted the sounds of the car wreck with just using his mouth. And it's like, bro, that's not necessary. We don't need that. Um, but, but those characters that end up on the news, I feel like that's kind of what, what it's like when the... When the sons of Israel stand before Pharaoh, he's got all the gold and shaved head and the makeup and all the Egyptian stuff. And then, and then in walks the shepherds of Jacob's family, right? Just these rednecks from Canaan. And they come in and, you know, it's, it's just an interesting scene and, and kind of the buildup is how is Pharaoh going to deal with them, favorably or unfavorably? And of course, by the grace of God and his favor upon Joseph and his brothers, Pharaoh deals with them very favorably. Look at verse 3. Genesis 47, 3 says, Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Pharaoh deals with them here very favorably, and this would have been unexpected and unusual for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were foreigners. They were not Egyptians. Secondly, uh, they they had the profession that most Egyptians abhorred. Um, Joseph actually coaches them for this meeting In chapter 46, verse 34, Joseph says to his brothers, You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph knows how uh, Egyptians looked upon shepherds, and he emphasizes to his brothers, Make sure Pharaoh knows that you're in this profession because your dads were. Uh, because your brothers, um, or because your fathers did this. And so they emphasize uh, to him that that is the reason they're in that profession. Um, and, and they're dealt with favorably. It, again, this is God's working on a, on a heart of a, a reprobate man in Pharaoh. But they're dealt with favorably by Pharaoh because they're being dealt with favorably by God. And by way of implication, I want you to know that the good things that you experience in life come from God. And we could be fooled into thinking that they come from, you know, Qdoba or Dairy Queen or whatever, right? That, 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 that we're actually just blessed by people and not by God. But, but my Bible tells me that every good and pleasant thing in this life comes down from the Father of lights who has given gifts to his children. And so even people that are not believers, that, that bring good into our lives, are actually uh, vessels of God, That if you experience grace from people, you're actually experiencing grace from the one that they're created in the image of. And so Joseph here brings his brothers in uh, before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is used by God to bring favor and blessing to these covenant people. But Joseph doesn't just stop at his brothers. He also brings in his dad to see Pharaoh. Now, if you thought it was risky to bring your redneck brothers in to the king, it's really risky to bring your 130-year-old dad to places, right? Um, like, you know, when you're 130 years old, you just stop caring about what you say, right? Like, we've all, we've all known people like that. Like, I can't wait till I get the elderly license to say whatever I want in any situation, Those of you that are there, right, you know how good it is. It's just, it's a great point in life to be in. Some of y'all walking around like Aunt Bethany on Christmas vacation. You just walk in, say the Pledge of Allegiance before dinner, like, is Rusty still in the Navy? It doesn't matter. You just say whatever you want. And and that's kind of how Jacob is. So Joseph brings Jacob in in uh, 47 verse 7. It says, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many... Are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Now, anybody else think that's a strange answer to give Pharaoh? Like, Jacob, what a buzzkill, right? It's like, you know, Pharaoh's just trying to be nice. You know, how old are you? And he's like, well, 130 years and evil are the years of my sojourning. Um, He's an old man. He's maybe starting to lose it a little bit. And, And God has led this son of promise to the king of the most powerful nation. And he's able to have this opportunity to pray for and bless Pharaoh, who is keeping the remnant of Israel. But what stands out most to me in this passage is not the fact that he gets to bless Pharaoh or even his crazy sort of answer, but it's it's the word that he chooses when he answers. Notice in verse 8, Pharaoh asks him how many were the days of the years of his life. And in his response, Jacob repeats the question, but instead of using the word life, he uses the word sojourning. And this clicks with me that Jacob in all of his flaws and failures has at least figured out one thing, is that he is always on the move. And I think it's a double entendre, so to speak, because Jacob did move around a lot and he never really had a home and settled in permanently. Um, so, So sojourning describes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as they live in a land that wasn't fully theirs yet. But I think theologically and spiritually it describes all of us. That, that the word sojourn means to stay temporarily. What it means for us is that, that even our lives, we, we shouldn't look at that as just life, but rather a sojourning to real life, which is the afterlife, the eternity that we're given by God. You see, we're not settlers in this life, we're travelers in it, amen? That we're moving, we're going, we're on mission with our God while we traverse toward an eternal home. And I think the older I get, the more I see that in reality, that, that we're sojourners, that life is, is short. I've seen the brevity more and more and the older I get. All of us, just by nature, the older we are, the more funerals we've attended. We're reminded all the time that our path is hard, our lives are short, and Jacob describes it even as evil. Now we look at that and say, that's a little harsh, ain't it? Maybe Jacob's just getting a little bit senile. But I think Jacob really understands that the world is filled with evil. The world you live in is evil. It's opposed to the goodness that God has placed in you. The message of the gospel is central because the world is against it. I mean, we have to realize that that, that as Christians, our marching orders, our our Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That the world was so damned and condemned that Jesus had to come and die to save sinners. That's our message as Christians. And so we have to have the, the, the realization that as we travel through this life, that it is a dangerous one and it is filled with sin and evil. But God has given us all we need for the task. Amen? If you've uh, been to the Basham home, you know that the Basham basement is filled with all kinds of gear. And to to the naked eye, you might look at our basement and think that we're doomsday preppers. And that's not the case at all. We just like to go camping. And we like to keep all our camping gear ready to go. You could tell us to go camping today, and we could probably be out the door in about five minutes, depending on how well the kids listen. Everything's right there ready to go. Fishing poles are by the door, kayaks by the door, bikes by the door, tents, chairs, all those things. All we need is ready to go. And and I want you to see that spiritually speaking, God has given you all you need to be ready to go for each day of your life to be on mission for the cause of Jesus. It's all given to you. Now, now you might not have the biggest house and the nicest truck and all those things, but every spiritual blessing is yours, child of God. Do you hear me? It is in your possession. God, your heavenly Father, has not held anything back from you when he saved you. He's given it all to you. You are an equipped Christian to go into a world full of evil and take them good news, saving news. Take them help. The second point is help in a world of hardship. And this specifically, this assistance or this help, is given not to the sons of Israel, but given to the Egyptians. Last week, we saw that God provides for his people through his people. Galatians 6.10 tells us, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. One of the, one of the reasons I love um, church invites, there, there are some people who would say, if you're inviting people to church, you're not actually sharing the gospel with someone. And, and I, I get you can, have, you can and should have deeper conversations than just, hey, join me at church sometimes. Um, however, inviting someone to church is not just inviting someone to an event. It is inviting someone into your family. I mean, my mom, she's back in Sunday school right now. My mom has invited some of the craziest people to some family dinners at our house. Some of y'all are them, okay? And and so, but, but what, I, what, mom, yeah, what mom's taught me, though, is that, is that inviting someone over for dinner is, is inviting them into the, the very depth of your family. And when we invite people to come to church with us, they might feel like you're just bringing them to an event, but there's something spiritual going on. You're invite, and so if you're here because you've been invited to church, let me just tell you what that person that invited you wanted to do. They want to invite you to become a part of our covenant family to become a worshiper of the true and living God, to serve Jesus who died on a cross and rose from the dead, to save you from your sins. And that help goes out to all. That help is extended. And so we begin with the family of faith, and then we let that overflow. In Genesis forty-seven fifteen, the Egyptians come to Joseph, and they begin to cry out because they're fearing that they'll starve to death. Verse 15 says, when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. Now, some people would look at this and say, Joseph is taking advantage of needy people he's taking the last thing that they have. Actually, interpret it differently. I think Joseph understands that he has been sovereignly placed where he is by God. In his words, he says, to save as many lives as possible. In his government ruling position, he could have said, nope, sorry, we only accept Egyptian currency. That's like, I've tried to pay my taxes before with cold, hard cash, and they're like, nope, we only take... A money order. And I'm like, you're the government. This is your currency. You know, take, It doesn't matter. But Joseph could have been a difficult government person, but instead he barters and he finds any way he can to justly and fairly provide food for the citizens. In verse 19, the problem deepens and continues because they run out of that food and then they don't have any more livestock. And he says, and they say to him, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land by us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. And so the people suggest making their land um, the next possession they have. You can take our land, and it can be owned by the government, and we also will actually be enslaved and held to bonds in service to Pharaoh. This shows their desperation for food and sustenance, and Joseph agrees to all this, but he graciously doesn't require all the produce of the land. Instead, he makes a law that one-fifth of the produce of the land would be held back or given uh, to Pharaoh, the king. Verse 25 continues, They said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now, what's important is, I don't think Joseph intended these laws to remain after the famine. You, you remember when we got the stimulus money? Don't y'all wish we had that back? That'd be nice if we were still getting stimulus checks. I need some of that STEMI money in my life. And, but that was, that was only intended during lockdown, right? when people couldn't go to work and when everything was shut down. That was only intended for that time period. And I believe that Joseph, in these extreme measures he takes, is doing a humanitarian effort, and he only intended these things to last For a certain season, it's kind of like if you ever have five hours free, which I know none of you have, you could play the game Monopoly. Um, And Monopoly, you know, even though it takes forever, it's one of my favorite games, but in Monopoly, if you run out of money, if you land on too many hotels and got to shell out all your dough to the people you're playing against, you can turn your properties over. And you can get money for them. And, but eventually in the game, once you get some money back and you get some revenue coming in and you pass go a few times, you're able to turn those properties back over and, and buy them back, so to speak, from the bank. Well, the new Pharaoh didn't allow this to happen. The new Pharaoh is described in the first chapter of Exodus as a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph uh, years later. But as the Pharaoh dynasty continues, they hold in place the harsh laws that were put in as, as an effect of the famine. And so this serves as a vivid reminder to God's people in later generation that Egypt was not their home. And the laws of Egypt were not intended to be their laws. And God never intended for them to remain there. In verse 29, as Jacob is coming to his death, he has uh, Joseph make a promise to him. That verse says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. That hand under his, his leg was a way of, of, of a, was a sign of the promise. And so he's saying, make a covenant, make a promise with me that you won't leave me in Egypt. And he's not just talking about where he wants to be buried. I believe Jacob is, is pressing into something having to do with legacy. He wants his family, he wants the nation that will come from his family to go back to the promise land of Canaan. You see, Jacob realized his sons were not meant to perpetually dwell in Egypt, this land of, of, of taxation, and universal taxation, and none of it going to the Lord, but all of it going to Pharaoh. Jacob was the one who had pledged a tithe, a tenth to the Lord. Jacob understood that God was their king, not Pharaoh. God was a God who would help the people like he did through Joseph, not rob the people like Pharaoh's did after Joseph. But, as history goes on, if you went to Sunday school, you know the stories. Exodus is, a, the book of Exodus, the next book in the Bible, is the story of Israel leaving, now, now being very numerous, a whole nation, leaving Egypt and returning to the promised land. They settle. God establishes government. God is their king. He has a series of, uh, of judges that rule over them. I mean, Eventually, through judges and prophets, they speak to the people and they speak to God and they begin to desire a king. In 1 Samuel 8, they begin to demand a king through Samuel. It says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. God makes it clear that he was supposed to be their king, and when they began to desire an earthly ruler instead of God, they got off base. Verse eight continues, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. So then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel continues to go to the people and tell them, if you elect a king, he will take your sons and put them in the military to fight wars for him. He'll take your daughters and take advantage of them. He'll take your land. He'll tax your income. God warned his people of faulty political leaders. Y'all ever look at politicians and just pray for Jesus to be your only ruler? I do. I, listen, I watch those debates, and I'm like, Jesus could own every person on that stage. He, he could debate so much better, have so many better answers. Shoot, I think most of y'all could when I watch them. But I look at these things, and, and I think it's a reminder that God's design was that he would be our king, not anyone else. So hear me very clearly, you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And I think it's one of the things we can learn from these brothers going and being in Egypt. By necessity, they had to do that, but their identity remained in that they were citizens of God's kingdom, not Pharaoh's. And for us, our allegiance must be supremely to our eternal king, not our earthly citizenship. Listen, it's okay to be patriotic and it's good to be. It's okay to pray for political leaders, and it's good to do that. It is right and good to pursue political reform. But your identity is not in your political revolution. Your identity is not in a donkey or an elephant or even a porcupine. It's in the Lamb of God. It's in the Lion of Judah. It's in the King of Kings. That has to be your first and primary allegiance. Where does your help come from in a world filled with hardship Does your help come from the right policies in Washington? Well, Psalm 121 would disagree with you if you think that's correct. That psalm says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so when Jacob asked his son, promise me that you'll return to the promised land, it's not just the place of his burial plot. He's saying, promise me that you'll hope in the king of all kings, not earthly kings. And listen, I know we got a year till election. Okay, I'm just getting you all ready. I'll just start making you mad now. So by the time we get to next November, you'll be primed and you'll be okay. Third and final point, we see legacy in a world of rebellion. Again, this will be the heavy focus of next week's entire service. Uh, we'll focus on legacy. What will we pass on to those that come after us? And I know it's tempting, especially those of you who don't have children, it's tempting to tune that out. If you're not parenting or grandparenting, I think it doesn't apply to you. But let me just tell you that as a church, if you desire to be part of the church, you are shaping youth in our church, and you're shaping and building culture that will affect people that aren't even born yet. I grew up at Middle Fork Baptist Church and there was a guy named Mr. T that they probably shouldn't have been let speaking in church. His doctrine wasn't all the greatest, but man, he would stand up and testify the goodness of God, and I can like still hear him talking about those things. People like Herman and Ruby and Bob and Nay and Nello and Anna were older people at my church that that had I not been in church, there's no reason I would have ever talked to those people. But they invested in me. Specifically, there was a couple named uh, Nello and Anna. Nello's with Jesus now. But... They were at the time that Amanda and I were first married, so we got married when we were nineteen, they were in their now it was in the seventies, I'm I'm thinking. And and they like not just one time going over to their house, like they had us over to their home continually. Like we would just be like an average Tuesday night hanging out with our friends who were like sixty years older than us. That doesn't happen outside of church family. And so that's why online services are wholeheartedly insufficient. We want you to build these kinds of relationships and be a part of legacy that's given to something beyond yourself. And so Jacob begins to take this point in chapter 48 and in the next chapter that he begins to prophesy and pray and bless those who are after him so that they will then take the good news to even more. In verse 8, it says, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? So Joseph said to his father, They're my sons whom God has given me here. He said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so he prays this blessing over his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And I think what's interesting is when he begins to pray, he blesses Joseph. Now, he, he pulled an old switcheroo here. It's, it's Jacob's favorite move. Remember, he deceived his dad and tricked and lied and stole the birthright and the blessing from his dad, from his brother Esau, to the detriment of Esau. And here, as he's an old man, he crosses his arms as he lays hands on his grandsons and prays over them and blesses them. Joseph later tries to correct him and straighten his arms out and say, no, this one's the eldest. He's the firstborn. This one's the younger but Jacob says he knows what he's doing, pulling the old switcheroo. But what I love about it is he doesn't do so to the detriment of Manasseh. He doesn't curse Manasseh. Rather, he blesses them both. And that's evidenced by the fact that in verse 15 it says he blessed Joseph. This is, this is informative in the fact that he is saying that he is blessing Joseph's entire household. You see, I think Jacob had matured and understood that the blessing of God wasn't just for the firstborn, or in his case, the younger one that stole the blessing. It wasn't just to the spiritual elite. What I think we can learn from Jacob is that that he had learned to walk in the covenant of God. You see, if we're not careful, what we will do is we will turn into religious elite the longer we're Christians, the more tempted we are to do it. Now, I, my prayer for all of us is that we are lifelong Christians with deep roots in the gospel that read our Bibles and pray lengthy prayers, and that we have tons of wisdom to impart to anyone that we can possibly help. But may the Lord stop our ministries if we ever get to the point where we look at ourselves as religious elite over those who have not yet tasted the goodness of the grace of Jesus from His cross. We are no better than anyone else. We have no right to look down on anyone else. We are sinners saved by grace, just like anyone who calls upon the Lord for repentance. And what Jacob here is praying is insightful and interesting, because I think it shows us his maturity took him 130 years. He's one of the worst characters in the Bible. I've, listen, I've dogged on Jacob for weeks now. He's just, he just sucks. He's a, he's, a terrible, he's a terrible man. He had so much deception and wrong in his life. But you know what? I think that's why the Lord wrote his story down for us. To teach us that we're not going to get it all right. That we're going to be deplorable and sinful. But we can still play a part in passing the gospel on to people who need to hear it. Now, notice what Jacob prays for for his grandsons. He doesn't pray that they would be shepherds like him and carry on the family business. He doesn't pray that they would make lots of money and be really successful. He doesn't pray that they would get sports scholarships and and, and be sports stars. His prayer for his grandsons, these boys, is that they would grow into a multitude. Now, I know for us that seems like a, a strange prayer. Why would he be praying that they have lots of babies? Is he Dom Toretto? Like, is he, what's going on here? Well, his prayer is deeper than just that they would have lots of kids. His prayer is that they would fulfill the promises of God. You remember what the promise was to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? That he would give them a promised land and that he would give them descendants that were more numerous than the grains of sand on the shore. Now, spiritually speaking, in Romans 9 in the New Testament, we're actually explained by the Holy Spirit what God was doing in that. That not only physical descendants, but spiritual descendants would come from this family. That the good news of Jesus, He would come, that He would die on a cross for our sins, and that His salvation would go out to people. And those of us who are of faith, Galatians tells us that we are of Abraham, that we are with Him, that we're part of this family. And so when Jacob prays that, that, that multitudes would come for them, he's praying for, for the spiritual promise of God to come to pass through his grandsons. Now that's a prayer I can get behind, even from a jacked up sinner like Jacob. That's a prayer that we ought to be praying for the youth and the people around us that we have influence over, that God's promises would come to fruition through them. God's promise in Revelation 5-9 that every nation, tribe, and tongue would profess the name of Jesus for salvation. We ought to pray that God would use our families for that to come to fruition. And what deep blessing would stand upon us as our families, our, our church, if we would commit to that. If we would commit to raising up disciples and equipping disciples to go and make disciples. And so we give thanks to our God who has richly helped us, equipped us for this task, and sent us on this mission. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.